Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, we have with us today Tevi Troy. He is a presidential historian, a former White House aide. He appears often on CNN, Fox News, Fox, Biz, Fox Business, uh, C-SPAN, PBS. He is the author of uh, a great deal of presidential history here. One is Shall We Wake the President, which is a history of presidents dealing with disasters. Uh, his 2013 book, What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted, 200 Years of Popular Culture in the White House. Uh, that, that actually is one thing that brought me attention to your writings, uh, Tevi, when I saw uh, something of a, of a condensation of the book in a commentary article about President Obama and how much uh, popular TV had shaped his, his sensibility. Why don't you give us a quick, a, a brief rundown of that 2013 book? Sure, and thanks for having me. The, the book in 2013, What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted, was a look at what presidents brought into themselves as popular culture, what entertained them. And obviously technology played a role because in the days of the founders, the only options were something you read or something you saw on the stage, a live performance. But as our technology and our culture evolved, suddenly you started to have the rise of radio, the rise of film, rise of TV, and then also outlets in which the president could not only receive, but also transmit in terms of being uh, appearing on TV or radio, being able to go on Twitter or Facebook and, and make your views known. And so that's why the title, what Jefferson read, Ike watched and Obama tweeted, goes from passive receipt to active transmission. In the Obama chapter that you talked about, which co commentary, one of my favorite magazines, did encapsulate with that great uh, th that great piece that I was able to uh, write for them, it <laughs> looked at, it's called the pop presidency of Barack Obama. And there's this whole notion of Obama as the great intellectual. And it's true, he read books and he was a smart guy, but he also watched more TV growing up than any president before him. His mindset was shaped by TV. And even as president, he was often watching TV, referring to TV, and making references in the vein of TV. He, TV was part of his mindset, and I tried to make that clear in that piece. If, if you were to add Trump, <laughs> it just occurs to me, if you add Trump to the top, what Jefferson read, what Ike watched, and Obama tweeted, now, n nothing prepared for, for, for President Trump well, and Twitter. Look, right. if I had written the book seven years later, obviously I would have written what, what Jefferson read, Ike watched, and Trump tweet, tweeted. Yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah. I, I like to think that I was kind of prescient in thinking of this idea of a president tweeting and how important Indeed. it was. Obama was the first president to tweet. Not all of the tweets came from him. If a tweet came specifically from him, it would have the letters B-O afterwards, standing not for body odor, but for Barack Obama. <laughs> and 
So there were specific tweets that were his that he, I guess, came from his heart or whatever. And but I think that was really groundbreaking that you had a president who could go over the heads of the media and transmit directly to the people, which is what we saw a little bit with Franklin Roosevelt and the fireside chats. And John right. F. Kennedy with his great press conferences where he kind of showed off his wit to the White House, to the adoring White House press corps. Right, right, right. Well, today's topic is not that. It is it is the White House, but we have a new book. Uh, it's out from it's out from Renury. It's called Fight House Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. And it, it goes inside. And you were inside the White House for for several years in in President Bush, two in his in his White House. So you, you're, you're giving us an inside glance. We've got a, got a lot of great stories here. And I, I just want to run through some of these White Houses. You, you begin with the end. Uh, you do talk about the White House. Uh, President Trump is often regarded as as a disaster right among among the media. And you, you actually find it notoriously volatile. Uh, but you diagnose it really as a battle between three White House factions, as you put it, globalist Democrats like Jared Kushner and, and Ivanka, conservative Republicans, Reince Priebus, and Bannonite populists, the, the Steve Bannon world. Now, you, you talk about this as ideological difference. Was this just too much ideological difference for any president to try to turn into a, a fruitful meeting of of contrary minds. Well, one of the ideas in Fight House is this notion that there are things a president can do to control infighting in the White House. And the top thing on the list is ideological comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y, comity, agreement on ideology. If you have a White House where people are on the same page ideologically, you're going to see less fighting. If you have a big split ideologically, you're going to see more fighting. So let's think about the moderates versus the conservatives in the, in the Reagan administration. What I try and point to in the Trump administration, and I don't really get into the deep, deep weeds in the Trump administration because we don't have the archives, we don't have the oral histories, all the stuff yeah. that I use for the other chapters. But in the Trump administration, it seemed in the early days that there were these three factions of the conservatives, the more more globalist types, and the, the Bannonites. And that, I thought, was contributing to some of the fighting. But again... We don't know for sure until we see what happens and once the archives are open. You know, the Bush administration where I served, the oral histories just came online. They just became available this year, in 20, last year in 2019. Hmm. So that's 10 years after Bush is out, out of office. Mm-hmm. So for the Trump oral histories, we're going to have to wait till 2031 or 2035 to really see what was going on. You, you quote Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who served in a few White Houses, uh, some Democrat, some Republican. Uh, not many of those. I, I, I think David Gergen. He Gergen, was another yes. one who, who famously. And we should served. talk about him because yes. he was very interesting. Yes, uh, but you have a nice quote from Moynihan who said, "In unanimity, one often finds a lack of rigorous thinking." Right. That's the problem. Too many people think the same way. You start with complacency. You know, you you, you lose your edge. Yeah. Groupthink is a real problem. If everybody thinks the same way, then you're not beta testing your ideas. You're not seeing what things will be looked at. And I saw this in the, in the Bush White House. We had all kinds of ideas sometimes, and we'd put it out there, and suddenly the reaction from the media, from the Democrats, even fellow Republicans, was sometimes very different than what we anticipated. Right. So you do need to have some in-house dissenters to check the ideas. In the Johnson administration, I talk about how Johnson would brook no dissent on Vietnam, and that, I think, led to bad results. There was only one guy who was the designated objector, George Ball. And right. he was allowed to object, uh, according to 
Johnson. Johnson let him do that, but it, it didn't stop him from from absorbing the slings and arrows of fellow White House staffers. So even if the president might give you a little room to object, sometimes your colleagues don't want to give you that. Right. You know, um, you you go into uh, a lot of each White House and you find some some primary uh, debates going on between them. Uh, when, when you when you, you you follow the Moynihan comment about not too much unanimity by, by saying a White House divided along clear ideological lines is prone to the disease of faction, right? It's a certain, you, you cross a line, it starts becoming a problem. It disables you. Instead of, you know, a leader stepping back and listening to a debate, getting all the good ideas, beta testing, as you put it, it ends up becoming disabling for dysfunctional. Was there did 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 Eisenhower in, in your chapter on Eisenhower did Eisenhower manage that to 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 bridge that that divide? Well, Eisenhower had a well. very button-down administration. There was relatively little conflict. I obviously do fight talk about one uh, fight with uh, John Foster Dulles. And, yes, uh, but the overall the Eisenhower, I think they were a little prone to groupthink. They didn't have enough disagreement. They had a very non-diverse cabinet. When I say diverse, I'm not talking about in the 21st century context, but a lot of people from business backgrounds and not from other backgrounds. What, what was the line about his cabinet? You, you, how many, how many? 18 CEOs and a plumber or something. Yeah, like that, exactly, right? exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, th- there was a great line from Eisenhower in 1956. He pushed back on Israel, France, and England. <laughs> Amazing that those three were allied at the time. But the, in the Suez crisis, they conquered the Sinai. Israel conquered it with the, the blessing and the help of, of the UK and France. And Eisenhower made them pull back, and it was seen as a win for the Soviet Union. So Eisenhower made a mistake there. And later, he said to a Jewish uh, Jewish Republican activist, Max Fisher, he said, you know, Max, if we'd had someone like you with your voice in the White House, we might have made a different decision there. So he was acknowledging that there was a little bit of groupthink in his White House, and if he'd had different perspectives, maybe they would have had better results. And you, you take the situation of Israel as a primary case of of White House debate in Truman's administration as well. What was that? What was happening there? Yeah, in general, in the White House, I was surprised at how many fights had to do with Israel. But it starts with Truman. Truman's the first administration I look like look at, and there was a big fight that had to do with the recognition of Israel. Right, the U.S. is a huge ally of Even Israel the recognition. today. Right, and at the time, the recognition was controversial. And George Marshall, who was not only the Secretary of State but the person that Truman revered more than anyone else in public life was against recognizing Israel, adamantly so. And Clark Clifford, who became Secretary of Defense, became a big shot later, but at the time he was a relatively junior White House aide, but a smart trial lawyer. And Truman assigned him the difficult job of standing up to Marshall in the Oval Office. And he made the case for representing Israel. And as a trial lawyer, he prepared a brief and he made the case and he won the day. And this, Marshall- this, this little kid? Right. Over, over, over the man who, who did the Marshall Plan? Right. Right. And Marshall was not happy about it. He never again spoke to Clifford and never mentioned his name for the rest of his life. And even Truman recognized what a difficult situation was because he said to Clifford after everyone else cleared out of the office, he looked at Clifford and said, well, that was rough as a cob, wasn't it? Indeed. Indeed. Uh, but but history looks back fondly on Clifford yes. on that on, on, on that score. Yeah, well, not uh, on the corruption, but uh, it's a different story, right? That, that later, that, yes, right. yes, yes. Now, uh, if we if if we jump ahead, is the is the RFK LBJ battle in JFK's 
White House. Is that the most high-profile personality conflict in in the full history that you lay out here? I don't know if highest profile, but definitely highest level, meaning the person who's a vice president and Lyndon B. Johnson fighting with the attorney general, Robert F. Kennedy. And they were two people, and I say this in the book, that the president couldn't fire. You can't fire your brother and you can't fire your <laughs> vice president. Right. And with those two problems, then you had these two people at each other's throats. And what I find most fascinating about that chapter is the shifting power dynamics. When they first meet, LBJ is big shot senator and Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, is a lowly Senate staffer. This is in the mid in 50s. The 50s right. Right. And, and, L- and LBJ humiliates him by kind of forcing him to forcing RFK to shake his hand. And McCarthy is there. Well, RFK works for McCarthy. Yes. He's a McCarthy staffer, which yes. people tend to neglect in you know, making these glowing no, no, portrayals. No, RFK is one of the most, one, right. one of the greatest liberal, you know, uh, p- p- he worked for Joe McCarthy? Yeah, he worked for Joe McCarthy. Absolutely. <laughs> and people forget that. <laughs> right. So, so, but then the sh- there's the shifting power now because then when RFK is the attorney general and closest person to his brother, then he's constantly humiliating, humiliating Lyndon Johnson. And then John F. K. is tr- uh, John F. Kennedy is tragically assassinated, and suddenly R. F. K. is still the Attorney General, but he's really nothing because he doesn't have his brother there, and L. B. J. is the power, and he starts setting about humiliating R. F. K. Right, right. How did? But b- before the assassination, how did J. F. K. I mean, this is one of the questions of leadership. How do you how do you resolve uh, warring factions among among your followers? How did J. F. K. handle the battle between L. B. J. and R. F. K. Or did he not handle it? Yes, it's a really good and interesting question because in some ways, uh, John F. Kennedy said to his staff, he's the vice president, you must treat him with respect. But his staff didn't listen to him. And I think it may be because they got this wink, wink, nod, nod from Robert F. Kennedy, who was most vitriolic against Johnson. There's a great, great quote in the book in Fight House where uh, it was from Kennedy's father. And he says, when Bobby hated you, you stayed hated. There was no way to unhate. <laughs> so, so he'd stayed hated. And even with John F. Kennedy saying he's the vice president, we should treat him with respect, he was not treated with respect. They had these nicknames for him like Uncle Cornpone. Right. You and, had a lot of quotes. The, the, there was just, just yeah, withering. Right. Uh, the, the, the North Texas State, you know, graduate who, uh, who uh, teaches college. Right. Uh, these are, these are all, all these Harvard people, including... Uh, one of the two intellectuals, which form a different rivalry in JFK's White House that you you talk a lot about, and that is between Sorensen and Schlesinger. Actually, was Sorensen a Harvard guy? I don't believe so. I can't. I can't. No, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure he wasn't. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's but, from Nebraska. That doesn't mean he didn't go to Harvard. But but two here here we have a completely different kind of rivalry, which will come up again of intellectual. In the intellectuals in the White House who are just coming opposite right. sides of, and this is of fascinating issues. because Schlesinger is the famous intellectual who won a Pulitzer Prize and would win another. Harvard professor. Right. But in the White House, he's a relatively minor character, whereas Sorensen didn't win any Pulitzer Prizes, and he is the closest aide who's not Kennedy's brother to John, John F. Kennedy. And later, I have this great quote from Sorensen where he says, how could I have been rivals with Arthur Schlesinger? It'd be like me being tennis rivals with Arthur Ashe. Right. He was such a higher level person. But on the other hand, in the White House, not only was Sorensen the more senior person, but he was very resentful if any of Schlesinger's words would make it into his speeches. Because as a writer, Sorensen was very protective of his words. But but Sorensen won the Pulitzer Prize for Profiles in Courage. Have you? Um, 
Well, <laughs> it took me a second because <laughs> Profiles of Courage, obviously a book that uh, John F. Kennedy supposedly wrote. Okay. Sorensen was the, the author, and the book got the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, Kennedy received the prize, but Sorensen was indeed the author. That's an excellent point. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> and I do talk about that a great deal in, in my book, uh, What Jefferson Read, you know, the, the kind of the forensics of who actually wrote that book. It's, it, even though the Kennedy people claimed that it was John F. Kennedy, it was clearly Sorensen. And what was when LBJ took... Uh, took office after the assassination, there was an issue with what was he going to do with all of the all the Kennedy people. You got this whole machinery in the White House now. He didn't always feel comfortable with intellectuals. And Kennedy was, you know, the Camelot was so heavy on intellectuals, right? Yeah. How did how did he work? through that. Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite parts of Fight House, talking about how Lyndon Johnson told the Kennedy people, I need you, you can't leave, I really need you around, but he didn't want them, he didn't like them, he didn't trust them, so he almost created a parallel White House staff of the Johnson people who were there, and they were the closest trusted people by Johnson, and they were doing the work, and the Kennedy people were there, and, and Johnson told them they can't leave, and he didn't want them to leave, but on the other hand, he wasn't giving them stuff to do. So Schlesinger and Sorensen did leave after a while, but can't can't see, can't see LBJ and Schlesinger sitting down yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 hammering out uh, a speech uh, or, or or policy or or anything. I actually do in my in my first book was on intellectuals in the American presidency. I wrote that about twenty years ago, and that book does have some memos and letters that Schlesinger wrote to LBJ in, in terms of advising him, which uh, you know is kind of funny today. Be, they they don't really fit together. And how did how did the Vietnam War play into any rivalries in LBJ's White House? Yeah, so in two ways. First of all, I talked about this idea how LBJ would not brook dissent and you had groupthink and, and you really didn't have dissenting voices. But the biggest dissenting voice on Vietnam was obviously Robert F. Kennedy. And it drove Johnson crazy because he knew that if he pulled back on Vietnam, Kennedy would, would criticize him for being soft. Right. But if he kept pushing it, Kennedy would criticize him for managing the war incorrectly. And Johnson just felt like he couldn't get around it. And it was having Kennedy in his head that more than anything else, it seemed to me, that drove Johnson to continue on the policy that really wasn't working. Huh. And Johnson did not have that that contrary figure in the room who would... Well, you, 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 you mentioned... The one figure. Right, there was George Ball. And right. then, and then this is actually great because Robert McNamara, who's a Kennedy person, actually I have this great story in the book that he would go to Robert F. Kennedy's house and they would play sardines together. You know, the children's hide and seek game. I can't imagine the defense secretary doing that today. But uh, so McNamara eventually sours on the war and Johnson attributes it to him being a Kennedy person. And he brings in his own person. Who does he bring in? Our old friend Clark Clifford from the Truman administration. And he becomes Secretary of Defense. And Johnson thinks that Clifford's going to be gung-ho and all on board with the war. And he is not. And Clifford also sees that something's very wrong with it. And Johnson and Clifford uh, have a uh, clash. And Clifford said that really affected his relationship with Johnson negatively. Was RFK obviously declaring for the presidency in 68, was that decisive in LBJ deciding I'm not going to run? It, it definitely... I can't, I can't remember. Right. That. It, it definitely played a, a big factor. I, I remember there's this great story that um, Johnson makes that declaration. He's not going to run. And he gets, all, for the first time in years, accolades from the press. And the press is very positive about him. And then five days later, Ma Martin Luther King is assassinated. And Johnson sits his staff down and said, all that good press we've got in the last five days, it's all going out the window now. Right. Right. Nixon... Now, you, you talk about Nixon's famously suspicious 
temperament. How did his how did his natural skepticism of the people around him? And there, there are a lot of UCLA people. I went to UCLA, so I have to I have to claim all, you know like Haldeman and, and all, yeah. actually at Pauley Pavilion, which is the famous you know basketball yeah. arena, uh, the house that John Wooden built, as it's sometimes called. Uh, Haldeman's name is is there uh, inscribed as as uh, I think one of the because because uh, he was one of the regents in the UC system uh, at uh, at that time. So, That's great. I'll have to look at that next time I'm in, I'm in LA. That's yeah, awesome. yeah. Um, but how how did the how did the Nixon temperament come come into play? I mean, did he want a super tight ship? No, I mean, was he was he actually? We should talk about leaks. The, the, when did the leak issue really get going? You, you, you talk about the leaks after Watergate, in in uh, uh, especially in in, Nixon, in in Ford's and Carter's administration. But were there was there leaking before that? Oh, there's a great story in the Johnson administration where the um, the Attorney General tells uh, hears that the Washington Post has a story, and he calls the Washington Post and he says, you have the story wrong and he ex- kind of explains what's going on. And then Johnson calls him up the next day and says, how did the story get in the Washington Post? He starts screaming at him and he says, I want you to fire the person who told the story. <laughs> right. And uh, the, the Attorney General says, I'm sorry, Mr. President, I can't do that. And he says, why? And he said, well, because I was the guy who gave it to him and he explains the story. And because Johnson, he gave him a better version. Right. right. He explained he, what was actually going on. Right. And right, he right. kind of softened what was happening. And Johnson says, well, God damn, that's the first time I've ever found the source of a leak in this town. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't even do anything right, about so, it yeah. <laughs> this time. So, right. so Nixon, uh, how did he deal with, with the staff then? Especially with the, the way Kissinger came, 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 into, came into the White House in, in, in an odd way. Right. So the central tension in the Nixon administration was between Kissinger, who was the national security advisor, and William Rogers, who was the secretary of state. And by any accounting, it's like if you were planning uh, to bet before a Super Bowl or a boxing match, if you looked at the statistics, Rogers should have the edge. Rogers had a 20-year relationship with Nixon. He was this uh, former attorney general, a very well-respected person. Kissinger was an upstart. He had been a Rockefeller person. He actually served in the Kennedy administration in an advisor role. And he's younger. He's got this German accent and a German accent 20 years after World War II was much more debilitating than it is today. He's Mm -hmm. Jewish. So it seems like Kissinger is behind and he should be the underdog, but he is a relentless infighter. He's paranoid. He's also brilliant and he runs rings around Rogers. I have this great story in the book that when Kissinger is working on the secret diplomacy to China, they're on a trip together to India and Pakistan and Kissinger skips a meeting because he says he's he's got an upset stomach and one of Rogers's aides speculates oh I bet you Kissinger doesn't have deli belly he's actually probably sneaking off to China and Rogers turns white because he realizes that's exactly what Kissinger is doing so again Rogers is the Secretary of State the duly constituted chief foreign policy officer but Kissinger runs rings around him and is so paranoid Anytime Rogers meets privately with Nixon, Kissinger paces the halls and complains about it. And he does all these things to undermine Rogers. One of my favorite stories is that Kissinger would be dating all these attractive women, and one of them was Jill St. John, the Bond girl. And it gets in the press that Kissinger is dating Jill St. John. And Kissinger goes to Nixon, he's irate. 
that Rogers has leaked the fact that he is dating Jill St. John. Well, the truth is that Kissinger had leaked it for two reasons. One is he wanted people to know he was dating Jill St. John, who's quite uh, attractive. <laughs> and the second is he wanted to undermine Rogers. So it was a brilliant use of the leak tactic by, by Kissinger, and he was constantly doing that kind of thing. And Rogers just, he didn't want to fight. He just wanted to be the Secretary of State. I, I attribute Kissinger's uh, tactical sneakiness to his years on, on the faculty. <laughs> it's all academia. You know, you know the, 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 well, the academic and, politics are so bitter because the stakes are so low, right? Hey, that, that, you know, people remember things in academia that happened 10 years before in, in, in a faculty meeting. It's a live wound for, for these people. So, okay. Uh, now, there was another intellectual battle that you talk about in Nixon's White House, and it brings us back to Moynihan again. Moynihan against Burns. Uh, what was this? Arthur Burns, again, here's a situation where you've got the upstart dart versus the more established person, Arthur Burns, a well-respected economist, better known. Um, Moynihan, uh, urban, ethnic, younger, had worked in Kennedy and Johnson, so a little less trusted, but also by the force of his personality and his brilliance and these great memos he would write to Nixon. I just loved going into the archives and reading his memos to Nixon about um, Leonard Bernstein's famous um, party with the Black Panthers. Radical chic. Right, or about the New York Times and its liberal bias. It's, you know, it's not a thing from 2020. You know, New York Times liberal bias has been around for a long time. He complained about the, the Maoist faction on West 43rd Street, <laughs> meaning which was the New York Times building at the time. So Ma Moynihan's memos are brilliant reading even today, and yes. Nixon loved them. And you could see Nixon's pencil annotations in the margins of the Kissinger, I'm sorry, of the Moynihan memos if you go to the, the Nixon archives. And it's really great stuff. And Moynihan had a more liberal approach and, and uh, Burns was more conservative, more free market, but uh, Moynihan tended to win the day and Burns eventually left to jo join the Federal Reserve, but he just was uh, out, consistently outmaneuvered uh, on the White House staff. Until Moynihan was undone by a leak. What was that? Yeah, this is a great story. Moynihan writes this memo. It's actually a brilliant memo. It's called the, Moy uh, the, um, the Moynihan Memo. And it talks about how to develop a black middle class and allow that black middle class to, uh, to gain in terms of wealth and property and, and just sort of integrate into the mainstream of U.S. society. And he called for a period of what he, 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 uh, the quote is, benign neglect. It's a great phrase, but it basically let this flower bloom. And the phrase also has the word neglect in it, right? You know, people forget the benign, they think about the neglect, and how dare you neglect the African-American community, and the memo is leaked to the New York Times. It's just a front page story about how terrible Moynihan is for pursuing this benign neglect strategy, and Moynihan leaves not long afterwards. We're not sure who leaked that. Still not sure. Uh, I have argued that it might have been Leon Panetta, who mm -hmm. was at the time a Republican and an aide at Health, and Education, and Welfare. Uh, I've also heard maybe it was Clark Malenhoff, who was, a, was an aide who didn't like Moynihan much. But uh, but w whatever the source of the leak was, it is clear that that was a bomb directed right at Moynihan and was damaging to him because even as late as the, uh, the 2000s... You, you mentioned Al Sharpton Al brought Sharpton it up. Al uh, Sharpton calls him Daniel Patrick Benign Neglect Moynihan. Right. <laughs> One of right. the many great nicknames I have in the book. And, in, and in this is already the Moynihan who had written the report on the Negro family uh, right. about five or six years earlier that uh, was so controversial here. And now now he's saying, let him go, right. huh? Let him sink back into poverty. Thanks a lot. Right, right. The report on the black family was something he'd written in the Johnson administration and right. it talked about the rise of out-of-wedlock births. At the time, uh, black out-of-wedlock births were around 30%. 
of total births. Now it's closer to 70%. And overall, out of wedlock births in U.S. society are over 30%. Right, right. You say on in page 91, we're getting into the Ford White House, one of your opening statements is, leaks in the Ford White House were vicious and incessant. One of the values of this book is everything we hear about the drama uh, and the melodrama of the Trump administration, we've seen a lot of this many, many times before. So why, why were the leaks were incessant and vicious in the Ford White House? Was part of that sort of a post-Watergate situation where people were starting trying to think, I got to use the press more. They're watching very closely and we, 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 can, we can really do damage. I think I think that's right. To co- cover, you know, CYA strategy, cover yourself, um, make sure that you know, the, you're not the source, you're, you're the source, not the target uh, of the, the bad stories. And I talk a lot about Bob Novak. Uh, he had this famous column, the Evans Novak column. The Novak is the father of Alex Novak, who is the publisher of Regnery History, which is the publisher of Fight House. And Alex actually contributed the preface, which is actually a quite good preface mm-hmm. to this book. And Novak would be the recipient of many leaks, including from this guy, Bob Hartman, who was a really problematic character in the Ford White House. And if he kind of situated himself in the ante room outside the Oval Office, and he would monitor the presidential inbox. And if something went in the inbox that he didn't like, he would pilfer it. He would take (laughs) it out of the inbox and hand it to Evans and Novak to make the author of the memo look bad. Golly. Nice for Evans and Novak. Yeah. Well, why can't presidents stop leaks? So presidents have tried all kinds of crazy things to stop leaks. I I document many of them in the book in Fight House. Uh, Lyndon Johnson would have the White House operators report to him who people were calling. It's not like everybody has their own cell phone today. Back then, people would ask the White House operator, can you get me Evans and Novak? And then so it would report back to Johnson, this guy, this aide had called Evans and Novak. He also had the White House motor pool report to him where White House aides were going for their lunches and their meetings. And so he but knew, but he still didn't stop leaks. Remember, he said only like the cats in back, the attorney general leak was the only one he said he ever found the source of. And, and there's nothing to do to a leaker who gets find out, ex- found out except get out. And sometimes they're valuable. Sometimes you need them, right? They they knew Kissinger was leaking, but they couldn't get rid of him. Another, uh, you you mentioned David Gergen earlier. He was such a prodigious leaker that his nickname in the Reagan White House was Professor Leaky. I love that. (laughs) Okay. Now, uh, the big big rivalry in Carter's White House was Brzezinski-Vance. What was that about? So it was Big Brzezinski, Polish intellectual, taught at Columbia, was the national security advisor. Very hard-charging, very sharp-elbowed fellow. Cyrus Vance, veteran of previous administrations, including the Johnson administration, where he was deputy secretary of defense, more of a patrician type, who um, uh, New York law partner, and um, and he was the he was kind of the Rogers to Brzezinski's uh, Kissinger, and these two were friendly before the administration had dinner together the night of Carter's election in 1976, talked about the prospects of them working together in the White House. But then on the first first day of the Carter administration, Brzezinski is shown his communications console, which includes a phone that rings directly from Carter and a phone that rings directly from Vance, uh, from the Secretary of State. And Brzezinski looks at the, the Secretary of State phone, points at it with disdain, and says, yank it out. I work for the president, not for Vance. First day of the administration. So things started off great there. There, there, there we go. 
I, w- I want to jump ahead because the Reagan White House had you, you, you go into a couple of rivalries there, but one of the big rivalries was Baker, James Baker versus Edwin Meese. And when I was reading this, I, I was I was out at a, a meeting and I was uh, a few weeks ago and talking with someone who was worked in a low level person in the Reagan White House who, who said that when, when I was asking about the Trump battle between sort of establishment Republicans and populist Trumpians. He actually traced this, or at least the roots of this, or maybe maybe a pre or previous manifestation of it, to the Baker-Meese conflict. Do you see any continuities, or is this too far back? Look, the, the main contrast there was between Baker, who was the more moderate type, and at the time, the Republican Party was split between the, the moderate Eastern establishment and the, and the more conservative Western and Southern types. Um, and and Meese, who represented, uh, I guess, uh, Reagan's id, right? Reagan's true conservative beliefs. And the two of them were at war. And Baker was prob- was more effective, even though Meese was closer to Reagan's true beliefs. But Baker ran an effective White House, did a really good job on that front. and But he also did it in part by diminishing Meese. Meese unilaterally disarmed. He didn't want to be leaking against Baker because he thought it was detrimental to the overall Reagan effort. But I think that fight between moderates and conservatives in the, the Republican Party has, has changed. I, I think that after the Bush 41 administration, that fight kind of went away. You don't really have moderates to the same degree in, in the party, but you do have different factions of conservatism. And conservatism, it, it never really becomes one coherent ideology. There's always different factions. And I think today the, the factions are just a little different yeah. than the ones you saw in that Reagan era. Yeah. Reagan's style, as as you put it, was you, you you see the factions, you see the the battles taking place, and he was willing to say, as you as you quote him, "Okay, you fellows go work it out, then come back to me." Did that work? I mean, was was that successful? So overall, it's a great question, right? Did it work? It did not work in that people had very bitter fights and rivalries in the Reagan White House, but it did work in that Reagan got great results, especially in his first term where he got tax cuts passed and he helped rebuild the military and he turned the economy around. So I think Reagan got great results from his staff, even though there was some some infighting. The second term, I think it didn't work as well, in part because Baker was now gone in the worst staff trade in American political history. Baker switches jobs with Don Regan. Regan becomes the chief of staff, not nearly as good at the chief of staff job as he was yeah. as treasury secretary or as Baker was. Whose idea was this? Well, it comes from a leak. There was this. There, there was a leak that Reagan was Regan was unhappy with. He calls up Baker and curses him out. Some, something about you know blank you and the, the horse he rode in on. And they decide to have a makeup lunch. And at that lunch, Baker, who always aspired to something more, he didn't want to be the campaign expert. He wanted to be a cabinet secretary. He would like to go over to Treasury. Regan, who always felt like Reagan was neglecting him, he didn't get much attention, no private time with with President Reagan as Treasury Secretary. He wants to be on the inside. He wants to be in the White House. So they each have their own motivations for switching, but it was a disastrous switch as, as I lay out in well, White what, House. Was Baker successful as the Treasury Secretary, though? Baker's or, been pretty much successful at everything he has done, yeah. <laughs> except yeah. trying to take over the Bush campaign in 92 uh, but it was too late. He, I think in September or something, he takes over the, the Bush campaign. And Bush, it was already baked in the cake that Bush was going to lose to Clinton. All right, uh, the Bill Clinton presidency. Is the Dick Morris saga the most bizarre White House personnel 
one in 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 all of American history? You know, it's a it's a great question. I have not really um, ranked all the sagas as most bizarre, it's, it's hard, but it's, hard de- to choose, huh? it's definitely up there. I mean, Dick Morris is this flamboyant, at that point conservative New Yorker, and he is brought in by Clinton after Clinton loses the 1994 election in Congress and the Republicans take over the House and Senate for the first time in over a generation. You, you call the 94 midterm really a defining moment in the, in defi- the Clinton administration. And, and that's saying presidency. a lot because a yeah. lot happened in that administration, but I think that was the defining moment in terms of how it established how the rest of the administration was going to go and how far the liberal drift of the first two years had gone. I, so, th- I think Bill Clinton learned the right lesson. I, I certainly agree. In, in a way, Barack Obama didn't learn the right lesson from his disastrous midterms. But but anyway, that's another that's another case. Go, go ahead. It's, it's go another ahead. case, but I completely agree. So, yeah. so, uh, so Clinton brings in this guy Dick Morris, with whom he'd had a famous contentious relationship beforehand, including a fist fight at one point when Morris was advising him as the governor of Arkansas. But he knows that Mo- Morris has the amazing polls and a great sense of where the nation's headed. But he's more conservative. And he brings Morris in secretly. He calls him Charlie. It's got Is this that... code name. And George Stephanopoulos. O- only Clinton, Hillary. Yeah. Were, was that it? No one else initially, was in on it. Initially, those are the only people who are in on it. Yes. And then later, they expand the circle a little bit to include Harold Ickes, who is a New York liberal who hates, hates, hates Morris, dating back decades to their time in New York together on different factions. <laughs> and immediately, Ickes leaks it to the press. Morris specifically asks him, can we keep this quiet? And, and Icky says, I can guarantee one thing that this is not going to be kept quiet. <laughs> and then Morris, right, and Morris, who could be obtuse, uh, also recognized that Icky's had it in for him. And he has this, this great quote I have in Fight House where he says, I can personally list 23 times that Harold Icky's has effed me over. I'm not going to use the actual <laughs> word he uses. And then Morris, again, gets um, uh, get, gets screwed by, by Icky's because Icky's leaks the records, the credit card records from Morris's time at the Jefferson Hotel, which include yeah. a lot of drinks and a lot of improper right. movies that he watched. Yeah. And so yeah. it made it an even two dozen times that uh, Icky's had done him ill. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, we're going to j- jump ahead to, to W's White House, uh, George W. Bush's White House, your experience. You were called in to the White House. What did a friend tell you when you agreed to go into Bush 2? Well, I went into the White House with some trepidation, not just because it's the most important uh, office in the land, but also because you'd heard some stories about uh, some of these challenges. And and, and interestingly, in the research of the book, I found that Karl Rove had similar concerns going into the Bush White House. Even though he was a much more senior person than I, he was concerned about the snake pit aspects of the White House. So I called this friend who worked in the Clinton administration. We don't agree ideologically, but he's a very smart and good guy. And I said to him, do you have any advice? And he said, watch your back. That was That's the it. number one thing he said <laughs> about working in the White House. Okay. The domestic, you were working on domestic issues, but you say that on the domestic side that uh, George W. Bush's White House was relatively free of the intense dramas of, of previous White House. True? It's true. It was hard for me to write that because I didn't want to be in the position of saying, well, where I worked, we everything great. was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I try really hard, and you know, I'll ask you if you can attest to this, but I quote a lot of other people who make that point, that there was a camaraderie in the Bush 43 domestic operation, not the foreign domestic, policy operation, right, but right. the domestic operation, and reporters even not only marveled about it, but complained about it because they whined that they weren't getting enough leaks from the disciplined Bush 43 team. We need better material. 
Right. We want leaks, and they weren't getting them. So, uh, so I think I'm on safe ground in saying it. But again, it was a challenge as someone who'd worked there. I didn't want to be giving us a good report card. But I think I, I give the Bush 43 administration, you know, some some lower marks when it comes to the foreign policy stuff. Right. Well, last question. We're 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 running out of time. But you you make a larger point there about how on the foreign policy side there was a lot of conflict, and you say that this isn't only a, a characteristic of, of the of the Bush administration there, but that domestic policies, you say, and it's on page 205, that domestic policy allows for forms of compromise. Okay, you know, money can go here and there. We can shift things around. We can work, work things out much more than foreign policy, especially when national security issue. You say some of those questions are just existential and that it becomes pe- people dig in. It's absolute. And so those 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 kinds of conflicts are prone to happen in a White House. Yeah, absolutely. You can split the difference on a stimulus bill, right? You want one trillion and you want 500 billion. You can go to 750. There's no split the difference on invade Iraq or don't invade Iraq. It is a binary question. And some side is going to win and some side is going to lose. So I think I'm glad you mentioned that point about the larger point, because this is what I'm always trying to do in my books. I try and look in White House and in my other books. I try and look at specific stories, what happened in a White House, and try and tell a larger story yeah. about what this teaches us about the American Republic, it teaches us about the presidency, and how to operate in our own lives. And you can learn lessons from White House about how to operate your own business in a way to minimize conflict and get the best results from your people. Right. The, the book is White House. It is, uh, in a way, it's a primer on leadership. How do you handle people and, and how, how, do you, how do you finesse that conflict between uniformity and agreeableness and diversity of opinion becoming, again, dysfunctional? Fight House, rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. It's out with Renuary Press. Thank you, Tevi Troy. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.